You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So welcome, everybody. It is April 1st, 2021 at 7.35 p.m. Tonight, we're going to talk about enlightenment in the bottle. Just kidding. It's April Fool's Day. Tonight, we're going to talk about compassion for neutral people, compassion practice for neutral people. Neutral people, of course, are the, the most common person that you're likely to encounter as you move through the world. Each time you encounter somebody, um, neutral people are thought of as people that you don't feel strongly for or against in the traditional way of describing them. I like to add to that people that you don't use a lot of time, energy, or resource to take care of. Emotions are very changeable and it's easy to have a sense of uh, ease or affection with somebody. And we're not really talking about that in terms of neutral people. In Dunbar parlance, this would really be the B group. Um, although sometimes we keep difficult people in, in the D group. Where do you live? Where do you work? Who do you encounter as you go about the world? Uh, taking care of the householder life that you lead. That's mainly this group. We're always talking about energy flows. Um, in Dunbar's research, he, he found that the people that were the happiest were the people that put 60% of their relationship into their A's and B relationships and 40% into their C and D relationships. Maybe I should review that just in case it's not coming to mind immediately. But A relationships are people that you tell everything to, that you take care of on a daily or every other day basis. Um, B relationships are people you tell everything to and you take care of on a weekly or every other week basis. Then below the line of, of, of being completely open is the C relationships that you tell some things to, people you tell some things to. Um, often you encounter them um, ordinarily as you move through the world, uh, maybe they're colleagues at work or that sort of thing. Um, 30 to 40 of those kinds of people, um, people who are out in the world typically have. Um, maybe you plan to meet them, you keep up with them, but you're just not completely open with them. The relationships are people that you see uh, at least yearly, don't tell everything to. Often you don't even plan to, to see them. And so neutral people are really in this C to D category here. Uh, one of the things that uh, I often talk about is how do you flow energy into relationships? And uh, can you um, manage that uh, and feel easy about it. So the main difference between an A and a B relationship is that A relationships, you uh, put the needs of the relationships ahead of individual exploration. And in B relationships, your individual relationship, your individual exploration needs takes precedence over the needs of the relationship. Uh, most people have one A relationship because uh, it takes so much time, energy, and resources 
and, and actually you have, it affects the freedom that you have just to explore what you want to. You have to negotiate that, accommodate the other person. In your relationships, you're free to explore, but you have people that support you in doing that exploration. We worked on friends and family, that's mainly the C group, people you see regularly take care of, don't necessarily tell them everything. Now we're on to the neutral people. One of the things that happens uh, is that we, we can tune out to the neutral people, really not be engaged with them as we encounter them. And rather than flowing an appropriate amount of energy into the relationship, we don't flow any at all. Or it's very limited, very perfunctory, almost uh, transactionatory. And so this is the, the idea here that in holding a compassionate space with somebody who's neutral is holding that space with an appropriate amount of energy, and at the same time not reflexively turning away from them. And how do you do that? So you're standing in line uh, at the supermarket and there's a moment where you could talk to the person in front of you or behind you. You take that opportunity to engage with them or do you uh, sort of steal yourself so that, that that doesn't happen? I would say that it, the most common response there is simply not to engage. Um, then you're with the cashier they usually are trained to say something along the lines of how, how's it going or something along that. And then do you engage them or do you not engage them? And, and how would the world be different? Uh, how would your experience be different if you were willing to engage them rather than simply being removed from them? So with compassion, of course, we're talking about um, the narrow focus on other people's suffering. In the Western sense of compassion, it's all emotion, so everything. Turning toward whoever is in front of you, opening to the experience of that, not reflexively turning away from their suffering if, if you encounter it, being able to open that compassionate space and hold the experience of the person. But at the same time, balancing the energy flow so that it's appropriate with the nature of the relationship that you're experiencing. That's really this uh, practice with compassion. The near enemy is uh, sympathy. So compassion is an engagement and it's an allowing of the empathetic connection to form with the other person. So you attune to them, you place your attention on them, you allow them to place your atten their attention on you, you allow the flowing of uh, empathetic energy between you. And if you detect suffering on their part, you take in the suffering experience and bring your emotional regulation capacities to the experience of their suffering. I remember once I was uh, at the supermarket near my house and um, 
the uh, cashier said to the woman in front of me, how are you today? And she said, uh, well, actually she just had a rather profound loss. And then she began to talk about the loss that she'd experienced. But she was very sensitive to the uh, limits of the cashier. And when she sensed that the cashier had uh, exchanged as much as she could around this loss, the woman said, thank you for listening. I really appreciate it. Uh, and, and that to me was a very skillful example of, of how that compassionate exchange could happen. You open, you flow the energy that's available, that's appropriate for the level of engagement that you have with the person. And then when you reach the limit of that energy exchange, you uh, signal to the other person that, that you've reached the limit and they uh, disconnect from it uh, in respect of that limitation. So it isn't always that you have to steal yourself and prevent any of these exchanges. There is this back and forth where you can move from the empathetic engagement of compassion into the sympathetic one, where you disengage intentionally. It becomes the near enemy because you can't tell the difference between a compassionate exchange and one that's not empathetic, or you have no agency in moving easily between them. So you move through the world, and with this frame of holding the space, uh, you don't have to um, remove yourself from the experience of the present moment. One of the things about going out into the world uh, is that uh, there is so much suffering there. Um, I live in Los Angeles and um, the uh, homeless uh, encampments are everywhere now that you look. It's quite uh, different than uh, before the pandemic started. Uh, there were... Uh, <coughs> <coughs> I don't know how it is where you live, but here a campman will form underneath a, an overpass or in a park and uh, it will stay there for several days and then they'll be moved along by either the sanitation department or the police. And then they'll just set up again somewhere else. And so we have these roving uh, homeless encampments. Uh, it used to be that the, the homeless were centered downtown Los Angeles. So here it's called uh, on the nickel. I, when I grew up in Chicago, it was called Skid Row. Uh, when I lived in New York, it was called the Bowery. Uh, these places where uh, homeless people um, are free to congregate. That is to say, there's a space where they can, can be without the constant churning, the constant movement. As downtown Los Angeles uh, gentrified uh, and uh, the uh, real estate in the, in the area around uh, the nickel, um, I guess it uh, went up and the buildings were rehabbed and, and uh, um, a different uh, demographic moved into the neighborhood. There was resistance to having that part of the city uh, occupied in that way. And so they moved them uh, away from the nickel, which is a public park on Fifth Street, uh, hence the name nickel, 
and um, and now that they're, they're they move around uh, depending on how hard the pressure is downtown, they they move outward. We had uh, uh, a quite a large homeless encampment around Echo Park Lake, which was removed last week, and um, but. And just doing uh, very limited commutes because we we're still in the middle of the pandemic. All along the freeway, there are these uh, homeless encampments, and I see that churning effort um, on part of the city to re to remove them and uh, this movement around. Um, so that the intensity of the suffering increases uh, as our uh, as the pandemic continues, and as the the uh, the economic consequences of so many people being out of work increases, and so there might be this natural inclination to turn away from all of that and to, to prevent yourself from engaging it, but that shutdown also shuts down all of the possibilities, the joyfulness that also could be there as you move uh, through the world. And so that reflexive shutting down um, isn't uh, that useful. And you could open it up uh, and, and, real ha and ha develop real agency in the, the flow of energy that you're willing to put or not put in and have a sense of freedom about that without a sense of uh, obligation Often, uh, depending on our condition, conditioning, we, we, we have the sense that we must be compassionate or that uh, not to attempt to respond in a compassionate way would be a failing of some sort. There is no way to develop an unlimited source of compassion that is not subject to impermanence in the way all things are subject to impermanence. So you really need to be checking in with yourself to see what resources are available in the moment that you're in and allocating them in a way that makes sense. Christian? Uh, I just got off my church council a couple months ago and um, a couple months before that, we had some homeless people, our church has been shut down, but we had some homeless people camping on our property and it's a sort of gentrified neighborhood now. And we just kept getting uh, voicemails from all the neighbors saying, you know, how can you fix this? How can you get rid of this? And uh, I was the only one on the council that was sort of tilting at the windmill going like, you know, fuck those neighbors, which is maybe my Christian language, but, um, and it totally spun me out. So, um, so yeah, I guess you can't really have that unlimited compassion or, or else like what, what do you do that's actually practical, right? Well, one of the things that I, I think that you do is if you can, and this is of course predicated on <coughs> your own safety, uh, real and perceived, uh, that you engage uh, people uh, where they're at. When I, uh, when, uh, you know, um, I didn't really intend to talk so much about the homeless, but now that we're on it, um, it, it, it hasn't always been the case. Uh, 
Uh, I am old enough to remember an America where we didn't have homeless in the way that we have them now. Uh, and this has been, this is a product of, of the, the dominance of the, the right wing of our politics. Um, it's an interesting thing. Uh, so the homeless populations are often made up of uh, people with mental health issues and also with uh, uh, poor families. That that tends to be the two big groups. It's it's probably in LA about evenly split. There is also a large contingent of teenagers on the street. Um, that usually is a, a, a teenagers fleeing. A, either unsafe or, or uh, intolerant households and preferring to live on the street. You, you have a sense of how dire it must be to prefer the life of living on the street, which is so hard and so painful from living in a home or a family with a family system. The, the public mental health um, prior to the, the wave of pharmaceuticals that came up um, in the, the 50s and 60s um, were these large uh, publicly funded hospitals that were not actually much more than simply a warehousing. And uh, in the 60s, the idea was that uh, integrated mental health, smaller integrated facilities in neighborhoods would be better for the, the people who were being treated and would offer a, a better outcome. And so it was John Kennedy who uh, changed the way that federal funds were used and began uh, a two-pronged approach, which was to defund the large uh, institutions or defund support for these large state institutions and then at the same time, fund the development of, of community homes where people could get treatment in smaller numbers within the community so that they wouldn't have to be taken out completely of the community. When Reagan came in, he allowed the defunding to continue, but then he defunded the development of the alternative. And so we went from having these large state hospitals to having nothing because the alternative that was supposed to be built in a tandem with the defunding of the large institutions was also defunded and then never developed. Um, with the advent of these, these strong psychotropic uh, uh, agents, uh, the, the, the shift was simply made to medicate them and, and release them. And what, what you end up having with people who don't function very well is that they end up very quickly uh, homeless and, and on the street. And so that was the first wave. And then of course, cutting the social services um, and uh, really uh, uh, pulling all of the money out of the, the bottom 50%. Um, <clears throat> When Reagan uh, took office, the bottom 50% of the population in our country earned 20% of the, the wages. And uh, now they earn 12% of the wages, which is a drastic reduction in the amount of 
money that half of the country has, which is one of the reasons why the homeless issue is so intense. You know, you hear about this, of course, in the conversation about minimum wage, which has been stagnant for uh, 20 years. But we are compassionate, or uh, in Buddhism, uh, we're intent uh, on intentionally developing this capacity for compassion. And so when we go out onto the street, at this point, it's really not possible to wander around in the part of town that I live in without routinely encountering homeless people. And then how do you relate to them? Half of them are uh, uh, struggling families, half of them have mental health issues, sometimes quite severe. There's a large number of young people there. Um, in that uh, really attending to this sense of how safe you feel and, uh, and uh, tying that to some uh, understanding of uh, what is safe, what isn't, and engaging people as you meet them, prepared to open this compassionate space. In these exchanges, which with neutral people are uh, usually fairly brief and uh, not very intimate. Sometimes uh, oriented around transactions, can you help me, in what way can you help me, that sort of thing. I remember I, I was coming out of a meditation center where I had just led a class and um, these two men approached me um, and they, they, I had seen them earlier uh, camping on the, the, the steps of the church that was across the street. And one of them said to me, um, do you have $2.80 we could have? And I said, $2.80 is a very specific amount of money. What do you want it for? And he said, we're going to buy a 40 ounce to celebrate. And I said, what are you celebrating? He said, he just got out of prison. So I said to him, what were you in prison for? And he said, stupid shit, which I thought was pretty funny. And so I, I didn't have $2.80, but I, I gave them $3. Um, and as they were walking away, uh, one of them said to me, we came at you correct, right? And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I could have told you we wanted a sandwich. I said, you came at me correct. Uh, I'm, I'm uh, expressing this as, a, as a, a way of simply being engaged with uh, the people that are in front of you, open, that uh, even though, uh, there was uh, suffering there. Uh, there was also a sense of liveliness. <coughs> Sometimes uh, we move out of compassion beyond sympathy into a sense of cruelty. Cruelty can take uh, different forms. Sometimes we think that we know better about how people should conduct themselves than, than uh, they do. And so we, we uh, organize the way that we respond to them based on what we think 
uh, they should be doing. And if they're not doing it the way that we think that they were doing it, we withhold or judge or sometimes express something that has pulled us into this dimension of cruelty, which is really defending ourselves against the experience of being open to the suffering. But it isn't only uh, obviously the, the homeless that you encounter, you encounter people everywhere you go. If you live in cities, even if, if you're in uh, <coughs> rural areas, we are human beings. The human condition really uh, benefits from being engaged in complex social groups and complex interactions. And so, how do you do it in such a way? I'm often describing this in that, that you become skilled at flowing energy. You wanna flow a lot of energy into the people who are close to you and you wanna be judicious and free to flow or not flow energy to people who are not so close to you. Usually when the energy flows get out of whack is when you, you become resentful in relationships. If you flow, too much energy into a relationship uh, and uh, it becomes taxing rather than rewarding, we tend to begin to resent it because it depletes our capacity for other things that we want to do. I remember once I went up to Mount Baldy, um, we had gone up to hear a Taisho. Uh, a Taisho is a is the Zen term for Dharma talk. Uh, Sasaki Roshi was uh, there for the summer and uh, Shinzen was translating. Uh, and so we would go up sometimes and listen. Um, and they're early in the, in the day, uh, around 8.30 or so. And then uh, they last for about an hour. And then um, we would go hiking. And we had gone hiking, there's a, a wonderful waterfall and in the spring there's a lot of water, it's quite dramatic. And then we stopped off at a, a, a restaurant, it's, it's a, the summer, the ski lodge in the summer, which is, has its own feeling to it. And um, I was so uh, surprised um, when I went in there uh, because they had these big, cases that were filled with uh, bugs. Um, I um, probably uh, uh, don't uh, support collecting bugs and putting them into cases at this point. But when I was a child, I had uh, uh, a, a, a two or three summers of riding around with my net and catching bugs and classifying them and doing that stuff. Um, but what was so astounding to me was the variety of insects that, that were in these cases uh, that I'd actually, in, in the 20 years or so of living in, in California, never, never seen. And they were all sorts of colors, yellows and blues, the, the reds. Um, and I was talking to the bartender about the experience of that as I was ordering my lunch. And he said, uh, you, you're in luck. The person who made the cases is here. And so I ended up having lunch with the, the, the guy who had made these cases. And we talked quite a bit about uh, where you would have to go 
uh, and where the insects might be that you could see them in the wild, uh, <coughs> which I found uh, very entertaining and rewarding. But I was traveling with somebody and, and they were outraged that I had invited somebody to lunch that, they, that he didn't know. Uh, and uh, he had thought that rather than the, the lunch being enlivened, uh, that it was ruined which was quite surprising to me. Uh, I, I, I did detect that he had gone silent. <coughs> um, I thought because I enjoyed it that he would also find it useful. Um, but I I recognized uh, that I had, uh, because of my own interests and my own desires, disconnected from the from his suffering in that moment. And that what he was asking me to do was to not have those conversations, not have those engagements because uh, the, uh, the expression of compassion, the openness to engage other people was still too frightening for him. And that uh, having a, uh, a completely strange person sitting at the table uh, during lunch was actually, uh, it felt very unsafe to him, whereas it felt completely safe to me. Christian. So knowing what you know now, what do you think would be the skillful option in such a case? Um, that's a good question. I think that, um, this is, a, this is this uh, question of exploration, right? I was fascinated and wanted to explore this, but I was also traveling with somebody and had some commitment to that relationship. Um, I could have tried to reassure him in a way that made him less afraid. Uh, and maybe then he would have been open to the conversation or I could have renounced the, my exploration uh, in, in favor of what he needed from me. So we are back to then to that, that structure of A's and B's and C's and D's. I didn't have a relationship with him where I would normally just uh, attenuate my exploration to, to attend to him. Um, and that he made that demand on me, I actually uh, was not happy about because I didn't think that we had that kind of relationship where that, that would happen. On the other hand, um, even though he, uh, his response to it was to shut down um, and only address, it to, only address his concerns to me after the person had left, which was obvious that he wasn't, he didn't feel safe even enough to express his displeasure uh, while we were having have uh, while we were having lunch, and then the that far enemy of uh, compassion, the sense of cruelty that that came up in response, was all there. <coughs> so that's your question. It's a good question. Do you uh, not explore because of somebody that you're with, because they make that demand on you, even though you haven't set up a relationship with them where that would be a reasonable request in the relationship. What then do you do? 
Um, I did not think my uh, uh, ignoring it was a good good response because he was uh, so angry at the end. I mean, really, uh, when you fall off into cruelty, it, it's it's an intense experience. But I loved the exploration. So you, you, you see the, the difficulty that all of this has. Um, it's easy with an A because that's the deal, right? You've negotiated. You would never invite somebody to lunch if the other person didn't agree because that's the basis of the relationship. But Bs or Cs are not supposed to be like that. <coughs> so. Um, in the end, it, it didn't really settle because uh, his demand uh, of me was that I, I always uh, circumvent my exploration if he doesn't agree with it. And uh, there wasn't any kind of recipro reciprocation that would have made sense for me to do that. Is that all making sense? Um, But here really with the practice for neutral people is, I think that the main difficulty is that uh, often uh, it's simply easier to shut off the flow of energy altogether and then move through the world without really engaging anyone because they don't have enough interest or even keeping your attention on somebody long enough while you're engaged with them and being open enough with them. Um, I, I emphasize again this sense of safety, both real and perceived. I noticed uh, I have some friends. Uh, I, I am, tend to think of myself as, uh, as having a, a, a good sense of safety. And I, I have some friends that, in my opinion, don't have any real awareness of their environment and often put me in situations which, where I feel unsafe. Um, I don't know objectively uh, where that really is. Uh, and I'm, I'm good at attending to people and keeping deals that I make with people. But with this category, there are largely, nothing's negotiated and often the encounters are brief and they come and go and whether there's even a second encounter is often unknown. Um, but how then do you keep open in the present moment, experience things as they're actually happening and then um, being able to engage them fully and, and take everything that's available in that moment. You don't engage the moment, of course, it still ends. Um, whereas if you engage the moment, often there's a richness that comes from that. Um, a sense of participation. And as you um, um, participate of, in all of these encounters, of course, you're, you're gathering more data, which makes the database richer and, and, and uh, you're, you're better able to discern what to do or what not to do in situations like that. So I guess I do advocate that we open to the experience around us and that we engage as fully as we can. And that as we encounter each of these people, as we move through the world, these neutral people that we might not even notice otherwise, 
we be present to the experience with them and we be open to an exchange with them. Um, touching into their suffering if we need to, not reflexively <coughs> turning away from it, but at the same time monitoring the energy flows so that we're not over committing to in a way that would later uh, make us feel frightened or uh, resentful that we've uh, done too much. And then to have a sense of peace with that. Is that all making sense? That's my sense of the, the engagement of uh, neutral people. I think also that uh, the capacity for compassion is quite variable depending on, on how settled you are in each moment. And so we really do want to pay attention to that. Sometimes a sympathetic response is, is uh, as much as we have available and then that's what we should be doing. Um, if you don't have the energy to provide a compassionate response, then you shouldn't do it. And you should be free not to do it. And, um, and really have good clarity about what's available and what isn't available. Because you can, of course, uh, get unbalanced yourself uh, energetically or emotionally by engaging beyond your capacity to do it. So one of the fundamental importances around understanding compassion is that is it available or isn't it available? And if it isn't available, that's a, there's a degree of an acceptance that comes that it just, I don't have it in this moment to give it. I can't give something that I don't have. Whereas to know also that I do have it to give in this moment and I'm free to give it or withhold it um, but if I were to withhold it, why am I withholding it? On what basis have I uh, made that um, decision, that choice? So we're going to do some practice now for neutral people. Um, what I like to do is practice for a specific person. Uh, and so uh, sometimes um, it's hard to even imagine um, a neutral person. So if you want to, uh, we'll spend a minute or so figuring it out, but thinking back over the, the last few days to see if you can remember an encounter with a neutral person and then, uh, uh, and then focus on them. The, um, the idea is to be able to hold the compassionate mind state in reference to the person. If you need to touch into a easy person to prime the pump, uh, do that and then come back into the neutral person. One of the main difficulties in practicing with neutral people is it's hard to get the mind to engage them sometimes. And so uh, back and forth with the neutral person. If it just seems impossible, then perhaps uh, go with uh, self. So go ahead and take your meditation posture. So any comments or questions about what we just did? So um, coming up in April, I have a 
meditation and addiction weekend retreat. Uh, I think it's the 24th and 25th of April. It's all day Saturday, that is to say, nine to four, and then from uh, nine to one on Sunday. We'll go through the um, meditation uh, and addiction. It's a, it's a meditation-based relapse prevention program with a uh, particular focus on attachment repair. In June, I'm gonna do a day long on compassion, really taking this, this series of talks that I've been giving over the past uh, few months or a couple of months and um, doing it in, a, in a, a day of practice around compassion. We have a uh, virtual uh, retreat, uh, an eight day retreat in June. Take a look at that. Starting in July, I'm gonna do a series of day longs on uh, meditation and attachment level one. I'll do a meditation and attachment for relationships day long in August. And then in September, we're gonna start another level two class. If you're interested in that, take a look at that. And then um, still up in the air whether we'll do an actual physical retreat or a virtual retreat uh, in December for the end of the year. So that's what we have coming up. It's all on the website, so take a look at it. Thank you for coming to class. I really appreciate your practice. I offer the teachings freely, um, but I do hope that you'll make a donation, help support me and also the work that Metagroup is doing. Find a link for our donation page on the website or in the email that you received about the class. Thank you for coming and we'll see you soon, I hope. Bye now.